All right. Well, good morning, everyone. Happy New Year. First service of 2024. Feels like New Year was a long time ago, but this is our first time gathering together in the new year. Uh, my name is Tim Greeno. I'm one of the pastors here at Walnut Creek. And if you're newer with us this morning, I want to say welcome to you. Uh, it's good to be worshiping Christ alongside you this morning. And uh, I just wanted to mention a couple of things. So today we're going to be getting back into our series on the book of Romans. So we, uh, this fall, we started studying through the book of Romans together. We got through the first three chapters of Romans. We're going to be in Romans chapter four today. Uh, but if you're newer with us, I just want to encourage you uh, to do a couple of things uh, while we're here today. Number one, on your way out of service today, uh, if you do not yet have a Romans study guide, you're going to be joining us uh, as we study through the book of Romans together. I want to encourage you to stop on your way out the double doors of the sanctuary this morning. Stop at the Welcome Center and grab a study guide. These study guides, we put them together uh, so that folks can follow along with us as we preach through uh, each book of the Bible. And they have the passages that we teach through split out and then room for notes during the sermons, room for notes notes during your own uh, Bible study and, and community group time, and also some helpful uh, just study uh, pointers in there. So go ahead and grab one of those on your way out today if you don't yet have one. And then second, if you weren't with us this fall and you missed the first three chapters of Romans and you're jumping in cold to Romans 4 and you're thinking, where are we? What, what have we studied so far? Um, I want to encourage you, you can always catch up on our messages on our church website in the media section. Okay, if you ever miss a message at church, you can always jump on the website and they're posted out there in the media section. And so if you missed the fall and you want to start chipping away and catching up with us in the Roman series, you can do that on the church website. Okay, now this morning, like I said, we, we covered Romans 1 through 3 earlier this fall. We're going to be jumping into Romans 4. We're going to get started in our passage, just reading the text. Okay, we've got a very interesting uh, text for this morning. Then we'll pray and we'll be on our way off and running into the text. But I want to encourage you, if you've got a Bible or you have one of those study guides, get them out at this time. Open it up to Romans chapter 4. And we're going to go ahead and read starting in verse 1. It says this. What then can we say that Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh, has found? If Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him for righteousness. Now to the one who works, pay is not credited as a gift. But it's something owed. But to the one who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited for righteousness. That's the text that we've got to stay this morning. I want to encourage you to join me in prayer. I'll invite you to just bow your heads with me. And let's take a few minutes here and just seek the Lord together in prayer. Heavenly Father, God. God, we confess that our hearts, they can be often cold and distant to you. God, we might have a thousand things that we've had on our minds this morning other than worshiping you. And yet, God, we cry out to you now, God, and ask that our hearts would worship you. Lord, we pray that our hearts would fear you. We pray that our hearts would, would honor you and glorify you, God. Lord, stir our hearts, even through your word this morning, God, stir our hearts to greater worship 
God, stir our hearts to, to care deeply about your word and what the scriptures say. Lord, help us to see through the life of Abraham, God, the glorious gift of righteousness through faith in Christ and to rejoice in it, God. God, we pray that our hearts would be more and more governed by your word. We pray that this morning, God, our hearts, they would be governed by your word. Help us to seek you now, God. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, I think that we would all agree there is a huge difference between something that theoretically makes sense and then something that actually makes sense in real life. Like there is a difference between ideas that sound good and ideas that actually work. My 10-year-old son, he could probably get up here and share about 50 stories with you of really good ideas he's had that haven't really translated all that effectively into real life. You know, a couple years ago, he got really big into urban squirrel hunting. I don't know if any of you are big urban squirrel hunters, but he came up with all these ideas for squirrel traps. Okay, he was trying to take down fat Gus. And the ideas that were in his mind, they were elaborate, they were lethal, like all of them were lethal, okay? Just potent ideas. But the problem was when it came to real life, most of his ideas didn't translate very well. When he had to take the idea of the squirrel traps and then actually apply them into real life, what he found out was the ideas he had, they sounded a lot better than they were in real life. When they were put to the test case of real life, most of them failed the test of reality. And what Paul's doing today in Romans chapter 4 is he's taking his ideas, the theology that he's just laid down in Romans chapters 1 through 3, he's taking them out of ideal land, he's putting them into real life, and he's applying a test case for the ideas that he's just got done spelling out. And what we're going to do today as we look at Romans chapter 4 is we're going to look at the test case that Paul uses in order to apply his ideas to. Now before we get into Paul's test case, I want to take a couple minutes here and just circle back to reorient ourselves with the book of Romans. Because we need to understand the context for the test case that Paul is going to apply. Now, the book of Romans as a whole, it was written by the Apostle Paul. Okay, so Romans, it's a letter written to the church in Rome by the Apostle Paul. And there's three key facts about the Apostle Paul that help us understand why this particular guy is writing this particular letter to these particular people in Rome. First, Paul was a Roman citizen by birth. Paul was a Roman. He's writing to the Romans as a Roman. He was a Roman citizen by birth. He did not help to plant the church in Rome, but he is an insider. Okay? He, he's got some skin in the game. He knows several people in the church in Rome. And he's one of them. He knows their culture. He knows their customs. He knows how they think. He knows what they believe. He's writing to them as a fellow Roman. And that's very helpful for us to understand not only how that impacts Paul's writing, but also how the church would have received his writing. 
I don't know if any of you follow golf, but, but the big drama of golf lately, I know golf doesn't have drama, but the big drama of golf lately is this big rivalry between the Saudi-backed golf league, Live Golf, and the PGA Tour. Okay? And when an outsider weighs in on the beef and the tension that they have between one another, it doesn't really mean that much. But when Tiger Woods sits down and he pens a letter to his fellow PGA Tour members, it's received a whole lot differently. Okay? And Paul, he's writing as one of them, as a Roman by birth. Not only was he a Roman by birth, but he was also a Jew by birth. And he was an extremely... Highly trained and knowledgeable Jew at that. He trained under one of the leading rabbis of his day prior to his conversion to Christianity. So Paul, he was both a Jew and a Roman by birth. And then he comes to Christ. Okay, Jesus confronts Paul on the road to Damascus. And Paul has this incredible conversion to Christianity. A wild conversion experience. He was not born a Christian. In fact, no one is born a Christian. If you are a Christian, you had to convert to Christianity. That's true for all of you. If you are a Christian, it means that at one point you actually converted, you were converted to Christ. Okay? And Paul, he converted to Christ on the road to Damascus. And at the time that he converts to Christ as a Roman Jew, Jesus tells him, here's the deal. I'm actually sending you out from here to be an apostle to the Gentiles, to non-Jews, to the rest of the world. So he is a Roman by birth, a Jew by birth. And at the command of Christ, he is an apostle to the Gentiles. Sent to bring the message of the gospel to Gentiles. Okay? And the letter that he's writing here now, the letter that we call the book of Romans, it's a letter that Paul has written. Paul, the Roman Jew, apostle to the Gentiles, he has written it to both Jewish and Gentile believers in the church in Rome in order to unite them together as one people under Christ in the gospel. Paul writes this letter to Jewish and Gentile believers in the church in Rome to bring them together in unity in Christ. Because there's a lot of tension between them. Okay? Jews and non-Jews, they did not get along very well. Turns out they still don't today. They had different customs. They had different values. They had different culture. There was animosity between them. There was infighting. There was judging one another. And Paul knew it should not be that way in the church. There is no place for division in the church. Especially over the things they were fighting about. He knew that they ought to be knit together in the gospel. And the reason he knew that is because according to the gospel, Jews and Gentiles, or Jews and non-Jews, they're not actually divided. According to the gospel, Jews and Gentiles, they're not 
actually separated. They are one people of God through faith in Christ. Okay? And so what Paul is doing in the book of Romans is he's writing to lay down that gospel theology that you are one in Christ. And he's writing to instruct them to live like it, to be united in Christ in the church because they have no business dividing. And in the first three chapters of the book of Romans, Paul, what he's done is he's laid down two major theological pillars to build his case for their unity in Christ. He's laid out two massive theological pillars. The first is that all people are united in condemnation through sin. He he writes to persuade them of the truth that every human being, every category of person, okay, every category of person on the planet, whether you're a Jew, a non-Jew, some godless person in the remotest jungles of the world, whatever you might, everybody in between, whatever category of person you may be, everyone is guilty of sin before God. Meaning, okay, when human beings stand before God, when we die, we will stand before God and give an account of our lives to Him. And when human beings die and stand before God, the first major theological pillar Paul lays down is this truth. No one will be able to stand before God and declare innocence or ignorance such that God would find them not guilty. Or such that God would find them righteous. No one will be able to claim innocence or ignorance on their own merit. Such that God will find them not guilty. Okay, we're all united in condemnation through sin. In that way, he puts everyone on equal ground. And by the way, that theological position would have been extremely unpopular. Among the Jews of the time. Okay. But then second. Paul makes the case. That for those in the church. We are also united. In righteousness. Through faith in Christ. Not only are we. United in condemnation. But we're united in righteousness. But we've received that righteousness. Through faith in Christ. And therefore we stand. As one people on the same ground. On the same foundation. He's saying that everybody had the same problem. We're all guilty of sin before God. Regardless of your background, your culture, your family, how good of a person you think you are, how religiously devout you think you are. Regardless of any of that, we are all guilty before God of sin. And there is one solution. We all have the same exact solution. Our sin can only be dealt with through faith in Christ. Righteousness is found through faith in Christ alone. And we are united in the church because of that reality. We can have entirely different cultures. We can have entirely different backgrounds, entirely different hobbies, interests, lives, whatever it might be. But in the church, we are united. Because we have all come to God on the exact same terms. All guilty of sin. All righteous through faith in Christ. And that is true whether you're the most devout Jew on the face of the earth. 
or the most faithful church attender that ever was, or some person who has never heard of God out in the remotest jungle of the world. And everybody in between, the only way we come to God is through faith in Christ. It is to receive righteousness as a gift through faith in Christ. And because that is true, Paul has argued in Romans 1 through 3, then we are and ought to be united in the church. Okay? That's the theology that Paul's laid down. Those two massive pillars. Guilty of sin, righteous through faith in Christ. And now what Paul's going to do in chapter 4 is he's going to apply a test case to those ideas. He is going to test those pillars against the reality of the scriptures. Do they actually hold, do these ideas hold water in real life with real people? And what we're going to do today as we get started in Romans 4 is we're going to look at the the first test case that Paul makes in Romans chapter 4 through the first five verses of Romans 4. And we're going to look at three points from the text. And this is going to serve as our outline. Point number one, Paul is writing about Abraham. He's writing about Abraham, the forefather of the Jews, one of the main characters of the Old Testament. Okay. Number two, Paul is writing according to the Scriptures. Paul writes according to the Scriptures, the Bible. Number three, Paul is writing to prove that righteousness only comes through faith in Christ. Paul is writing to prove that righteousness only comes through faith in Christ. This is his test case. So point number one. Paul is writing about Abraham. Paul is writing the the, the person he chooses... To use as a test case to apply his ideas to is none other than Abraham, the forefather of the Jews, great hero of the Jews, Abraham. And he starts out in chapter 4 with this. He says, what then will we say that Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh, has found? He says, what are we going to find when we look at Abraham? Test, let's test my ideas here. Let's test my, my two massive theological pillars. Let's go ahead and test it against Abraham. What are we going to find when we look at Abraham? Will he prove those ideas correct? That they actually stand up under the test of reality? Or will they fail the test? Is it going to work when you apply my ideas, my theology to Your guy, Abraham. Now here's why Abraham was such an important test case for the Apostle Paul to make. First, Abraham is the ultimate steel man to test his theology on. You guys, you've probably heard of a straw man argument. You you build a really weak argument for the opposing side and then you just tear it down. It makes your own argument look awesome. Okay, Paul's going to do the opposite here. He's going to build the strongest case possible against his own theology and that's what he's going to test and see can my theology stand up against the strongest possible argument on the other side of the equation okay 
And remember, Paul, he's trying to make the case that everyone is guilty of sin. And everyone must obtain righteousness through faith in Christ. And he says, Abraham is the guy who we ought to test this theory against. Because everybody knows that Abraham is righteous. Every, like everyone would have agreed, if Paul would have polled the audience, everyone would have agreed. Abraham is righteous before God. He has righteousness before God. But according to Jewish rabbinical writings... Abraham was alleged to have actually earned that righteousness because of his good works. They genuinely thought that Abraham had obeyed the law of God prior to the law even being given. He obeyed it and he was righteous before God on account of his own merit, his own obedience to God. And so Paul says, okay, Let's start here. Give me your best shot. Give me your best example. The guy that you think breaks my theology. Okay? And let's start here. Abraham was the perfect steel man for Paul's case. Not only was he the perfect steel man, but Abraham is also the ultimate example for both Jews and Gentiles alike. And so he writes according to Abraham because Abraham... He, remember, Paul, he's, he's writing to the church in Rome to both Jews and Gentiles. He's not just trying to persuade one or the other about his theology that knits them together in Christ. He's writing to both camps. And Abraham is a great example for both camps to look to in terms of how righteousness is obtained before God. Because even though Abraham was the father of the Jews, Abraham wasn't born a Jew. Abraham was born a heathen, an idol worshiper. Far from God, very much a Gentile. And then he was called to follow God. And before he was circumcised, before Abraham ever had the mark, the sign, the seal of the Jews, he was found righteous before God. Okay? And so he's not just the father of the Jews. He is also the father of the Gentiles, those who follow in the footsteps of his faith. And so he's the perfect example for Jews and Gentiles alike. And Paul is going to make his case for his theology applied to the life of Abraham. Okay, but I want you to notice that he does it according to the scriptures, according to the word of God. Paul, his test case is made according to what God's word actually says. Paul is writing according to the scriptures. Point number two. And Paul makes his case very carefully from the word of God. Romans 4 verse 1. It says, what then will we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, has found? What do we find in Abraham? If Abraham was justified by works, if that's really true, if the story that you guys tell is really true, well, then he has something to boast about. But not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God. And it was credited to him for righteousness. The place where Paul turns to establish what is true 
Okay, Paul, he, he needs to apply his ideas. He needs to test his ideas and say, do they actually pass the test of reality? Where does Paul turn to test his ideas in reality? He looks to the word of God, to the scriptures. He quotes Genesis 15, verse 6. He says, if you want to know what's true, if you want to know what is true, then you need to ask this question. What does the scripture say? If you want to test your ideas against reality, this is the question you have to ask. What does the scripture say? Now, before we keep moving on through Paul's test case, I want you to just stop and think about your life. Okay? Think about your life. Is this the question that governs your life? And I want you to think about some decisions that you make in life. Like we all make hundreds of decisions every day. They're not all of equal importance. But they are all important in one way or another. Okay? Make hundreds of decisions every day. Is this the question that governs your life? When you've got to make a decision, like when you make decisions about what your schedule is going to be like, okay? So, now, granted, there's not like, life doesn't come to us in categories, So life doesn't come to us like, hey, here's a spiritual question. Be good to ask. Like, what does the scripture say? Here's a non-spiritual thing. Don't worry about it. Just do whatever you think feels good. Like, that's not how life comes at us. And that's not how life is anyways. Every, everything ultimately actually is spiritual. Everything in life, it actually does relate back to God. There's not like some things that that matter to God and then like 90% of life, like whatever, just do whatever. Whatever you think, whatever feels right, just do that. All of life relates back to God. And so when it comes to things like, okay, how are we going to spend our time today, this week, this month? Do we carve out time as a family to sing and be in the Word together, or do we not? Do I carve out time individually to pray, or do I not? Uh, Do we have our kids in activities and sports and this that and the other thing or do we not do do we how 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 many uh what what is that going to look like how are we spending our 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 money as a family how am i going to spend money today this week this month this year where is our money going to go all of these things like you're, you're making hundreds of decisions Every day. But the question is. Are you seeking wisdom. And answers to how to make those decisions. In the word of God. Are you stopping to ask the question. What do the scriptures say. When you've got to figure out like. Are the things that I'm looking at. Okay the shows that I'm watching. Or the music that I'm listening to. Is it good. Is it best. Should I be listening to this? Should I be watching this? Are you 
asking the question, what do the scriptures say with expectation that God's word actually does speak into every arena of life and have answers for us that at least guide the way that we would make those decisions? Do the scriptures govern your life? Should I move? Should I take a new job? Should we send our kids to public school or private school or homeschool? Or who should I vote for? Where should I live? What should I do for... Do we believe that God's word is intended to govern our lives? Are we asking that question? What do the scriptures say? Are you testing your ideas? See, all of the decisions you make, they're going to come from the ideas that you have... In your mind about what is good, what's going to lead to life, what's going to make you happy. Are you testing your ideas against the reality of the scriptures? What does God's word say is important? What does God's word say I should prioritize for my time, my money, how to structure time with my kids? What does scripture say? And, and does the word of God, does it govern your heart? Your feelings, your mood, your emotions, your thoughts. Is your heart actually attached to what the word of God says? Or is your mood more a reflection of your circumstances? Are your emotions, your thoughts about yourself, your life, your kids, your spouse, whatever it might be. Are those things more a reflection of your circumstances? Or a reflection of what God's word says. What does the scripture say? Are you asking that question? Like when you wake up feeling down or empty or worthless or angry or frustrated or lazy. Or you don't feel like God is good. Or you don't feel like God is fair or life is fair. Or you feel bitter towards your spouse. Or you feel bitter towards your kids. Are you stopping to ask the question? What does God's word say is true about my life, about my kids, about my spouse, about my circumstances? What does God's word say? And is your heart, are your thoughts, are your emotions more deeply tied to what God's word says or to what you Feel or think according to your circumstances. Are you letting God's word govern your life and your heart? What do the scriptures say? I think we need to ask that question far more often than our instincts tell us that we need to. Obviously, that's a great question to ask, but if you're not in God's word... You can ask the question all you want. But no answer is coming back if you're not in the word of God. So we need to be in God's word and we need to realize God has given us his word in part to govern our lives and our hearts. Because it is the ultimate source of reality. That's the ultimate source of truth. That's why Paul asks the question, what do the scriptures say? It's because they're the ultimate source of of reality, of truth. And Paul uses the scriptures to take his ideas and put them to the test. What matters is 
One question. What does the scripture say? Parents, if you want to teach your kids morals, teach them how to think like this. If you want to teach them how to prioritize their lives, teach them how to think like this. Don't just teach them what you think is good. Teach them how to ask this question. Set the example in it. Live it out. And teach them. This is the guiding principle. What do the scriptures say? And Paul makes his test case according to the scriptures. He writes about Abraham. And he writes according to the scriptures. That's the foundation of his test case. And then finally, here's the case that he makes. Paul is writing point number three. To prove that righteousness only comes through faith in Christ. He is writing to prove that righteousness only comes through faith in Christ. And he's going to prove his theology. Okay? That no matter, and he's going to do it through Abraham according to the scriptures, no matter who you are, no matter what background you come from, or how good of a person you might think that you are, or how religiously devout you may be, the only way a human being can deal with their sin which we are all guilty of, is to be saved from God's wrath by being found righteous through faith in Christ. He says in this Romans 4, verse 3, what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him for righteousness. It was a gift. Now, to the one who works, pay is not credited as a gift, but as something owed. But to the one who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited for righteousness. Notice in verse 5, Paul, he's lumping Abraham in with the ungodly. Uh, uh, who, who believes on him who justifies the ungodly. He's lumping Abraham right in with the ungodly because everyone's guilty of sin. And he says, to the one who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited for righteousness. This is how Abraham was actually made righteous before God according to the scriptures. It was through faith. And his righteousness was credited to him. That means it was given as a gift, not as something that he worked for. And this came even before he was circumcised. Genesis 15 is before Genesis 17, where Abraham receives circumcision as the sign of the righteousness he already had through faith. It was before the law, hundreds of years before the law ever came. Abraham was made righteous before God as a gift through faith. He received it, credited to him. Abraham was given righteousness as a gift based on someone else's merit through faith. It wasn't because of his own. Thomas Schreiner, he says, working, speaking of verse 4 here, working relies on one's own capability. When we work... It's because we are trusting that my work is going to produce whatever outcome I'm hoping for. But believing relies on another's capability. 
believing rather than works is trusting in somebody else's merit, capability. And the way to be righteous before God proved by Paul through Abraham is to rely on someone else's merit, on someone else's work, that being Christ. And Abraham received the righteousness of Christ as a gift through faith. Because he was ungodly, he was guilty of sin, he had to receive righteousness through faith. And not just generic faith, but faith in Christ. Faith always has content, and the content of our faith matters very much. Like, we don't just generically believe and then we're saved, regardless of who or what we are believing or trusting in. And Abraham was credited as righteous through faith in Christ. That was the content of his faith. John 8, 56. Jesus says to the Jews, your father Abraham, here's what's true about him. He rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it. And he was glad. Abraham saw the day of Christ out in front of him. And he rejoiced in it. Did he know the name of Jesus ahead of time? We don't know that. That's not what Jesus says. But we know that he saw the day of God's Savior coming. And he rejoiced in it. He believed. And God credited him with righteousness through faith. Even Abraham, guilty of sin, righteous through faith in Christ. Paul uses Abraham and the word of God to prove that salvation only comes, righteousness only comes through faith in Christ. People sometimes wrestle with the question like, what about all these people that lived and died before Jesus? Are they in hell? How could they possibly be saved? And I love Paul. He answers that question from the word of God itself. There is one problem. It is the problem of sin. We are all united in condemnation through sin. And there is one solution for all people, for all time, in every era, for all cultures. And that solution is the cross. Where Jesus, what he did at the cross, Jesus took the sin of the world for all time upon himself. He took it on himself. And the wrath of God, all of the wrath of God for sin was exhausted and poured out upon his son Jesus on the cross exhausted so that we might be forgiven and then three days later the crucified Christ rose from the grave and what did Jesus do he conquered death so that death may no longer reign and he ascended to the father and he said to his disciples it is good that I am going 
because when I go, I will send the Spirit. Jesus, he ascended to the Father so that he might send us the Holy Spirit that through faith in Christ, we're we're not just forgiven. It's not just that the wrath of God has been exhausted for all sin, for all time, once for all. Jesus, he, he went back to the Father so he could send the Spirit, so that through the Spirit we have the righteousness of Christ. Where there was once sin and death and wrath in our hearts, there is now forgiveness and life and righteousness through the Spirit. And all of it, we do not work for it. We could not work for it. It is a gift through faith in Christ that we receive based on Jesus' merit, based on Jesus' work upon the cross. We receive it as a gift. And Paul says, you receive it as a gift just like Abraham did. And as we close this morning, I want to give you one question to consider, which is this. If you were to die today, if you were to die today, how confident are you that you are actually righteous before God? How confident are you that you are really righteous before God and that you will be in heaven perfectly righteous with him for all of eternity? I want you to think about it. And look, I I think Paul's theology and his test case are airtight. He is concise. He is clear. We are guilty of sin before God. And righteousness comes through faith in Christ. I think he is concise. He is clear. So the question is this. Are you actually in Christ? See, I think what what Paul does so helpfully is he eliminates the question of how, or he answers the question with incredible clarity of how. How can we be righteous before God? I know that I'm guilty of sin. How can we be righteous before God? It is through faith in Christ. Paul is so clear, and he lays down this test case so well so that we understand through the scriptures in real life, that idea holds water. That is true. It is True, that that we are righteous through faith in Christ. Okay, so he answers the how question. The mechanics are simple. And so the real question is this. Do you have faith in Christ? Are you actually in Christ? And therefore, are you righteous before God? If you were to die today, how confident are you that you're actually righteous before God? And if you are not confident that you're actually in Christ, maybe there is some sin that's dominating your life. And you're like, I don't know if I'm really in Christ. Or maybe you want to be in Christ and you're like, I just don't know what it really means or feels like 
to be in Christ, to have faith, to genuine faith, saving faith in Christ. I, I don't really know what that is or what that is like or what it's supposed to feel like. And you have questions and you wonder, am I really righteous before God? Or maybe you know, I am definitely not in Christ. I have no confidence that I'm righteous before God because I know that I'm not in Christ. Maybe that's where you're at. But I just want to tell you, do not ignore where you are genuinely at with this question. How confident are you that you are righteous before God? Don't ignore it and don't presume that where you're at today is where you must stay. And as you consider that question, what I want to encourage you to do, to apply, to take with you into your life is this. Wherever you're at, however you're feeling about the answer to that question, I want to encourage you to have real conversations with people in your life about where you are actually at spiritually with Jesus Christ. Talk about it. Talk about it with people. Don't allow those questions just to linger and live in your own mind, in your own thoughts. Talk about it with people. Get together with one of us as pastors. And let's talk about where you're really at with Jesus. If you're not involved in a community group, get involved in a community group and talk about it with the people that are in your life, in your community group. If you are involved in a community group, talk about it. As you think about this question, as you wrestle through this, talk about it. Where are you at with the Lord? And if you are not confident that you have righteousness before God through faith in Christ, I just want to encourage you, don't let another day go by without dealing with it. It is far too important to kick the can on that question. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you for the example of Abraham. Thank you that Abraham, though he was righteous, God, his righteousness came through faith. God, thank you that, God, even though we are guilty, Lord, you promise, you, you promise by your word that the one who casts himself upon you seeking mercy through faith in Christ will be saved, will be found righteous in Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray, God, make us people who are humble and willing and able to confess our sin. God, we have to confess sin to you. God, and make us people who are genuinely trusting in the work of Jesus upon the cross. And Lord, through that, may we be righteous before you, God, and may our lives be governed by the righteousness that is ours through Christ and by your word. May our hearts, our thoughts, our emotions, our feelings, God, be governed by the righteousness that is ours through faith in Christ and by your word. Yeah, we pray for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, this time we're going to continue our worship together through communion.
And we're going to take just a few minutes here uh, to remember, to worship, to praise Jesus for his work on the cross through the physical elements that God gives us uh, in order to uh, remind us of his work on the cross, but also to commune and fellowship with us as we share that meal together and with um, with one another. So there are elements for communion under the seat in front of you. If you are a believer in Christ, this is a time for us as believers in Christ to worship Christ through those elements. You can grab the elements, the cup uh, representing Jesus' blood poured out, shed for us, for our sin, his body represented by uh, the bread, again, broken on our behalf so that we can be forgiven of sin. If you are not a believer, I want to encourage you to abstain from the elements. This is a time for those who are in Christ, okay, to consume those elements reflecting upon what is effectually been made true through faith in Christ. So if you are not a believer, abstain from those elements. And uh, I would encourage you, though, to really wrestle with that question. Where are you at with the Lord? Okay? Where are you at? And what is going on in your heart between you and the Lord? So I'm going to go ahead and pray. And then I would encourage you to take a couple of minutes in prayer among yourselves with one another Uh, during this time of communion. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you again for Christ. Thank you for his work on the cross. Thank you that his work was was not without effect, but instead his death on the cross, it meant everything to us, God, that, that our sins are actually paid for and forgiven. Thank you. He is our great substitute, Lord. I pray this time of fellowship through communion would be a great blessing to unite us together as a body of believers. Lord, may no no division or tension stand in the way of our fellowship that we have, our unity that we have through Christ. We pray this time of communion would, would go a long way towards walking in unity with one another, God, in the church. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.